Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. The many lies of Meghan Markle. That is the subject of today's talking points. Meghan Markle lies regularly, more than most people, about a lot. Yes, you can go back to the Oprah interview for many examples. She and Harry secretly married three days before their actual wedding. No. Her baby wasn't going to be a prince because of his race. No. She had her passport taken away by the palace. False. Palace HR dismissed her suicidal pleas for help. On and on and on it goes. Remember how she swore she had absolutely no contact with the writers of that fawning book, Finding Freedom, about Mexit? Compare those statements with her statements to the British courts, where she was forced to admit to the judge that, whoops, she forgot she 100% was in contact with the authors of Finding Freedom, a fact obvious to anyone who read that boot-looking embarrassing embarrassment of a publication. She lies so often she's had to hire a new publicity team now to help work on her image and a fact checker for her Spotify podcast, which is rather amusing when you consider the falsehoods broadcast there so far have all been about her. (laughs) What's the fact checker going to do? I'm sorry, madam. It's appeared that uh, you've lied about yourself again. (laughs) Best of luck to the fact checker working for the Duchess of Duplicity. No, Duchess, the South African actor in the British Lion King production did not tell you that he celebrated your wedding with others in the streets in the way they celebrated Nelson Mandela being freed. No, madam, your baby did not almost die in a fire while you were on an overseas trip. There was some smoke from a heater and your son was nowhere near the room. Markle's latest lie came from her podcast that she did with Paris Hilton yesterday. It relates to Markle's time on the game show Deal or No Deal, back when she was about 25 years old and an aspiring actress in Hollywood. Now, any normal person who was on that show and later married a prince would probably say, oh, it was super fun and it opened up a lot of doors for me and I'm very grateful. Not Megan missed the Markle. Now that she's in her $15 million mansion in Montecito, which Despite her claiming that Harry saw the place and its intertwined palm trees out front and said to her, they're us, my love. 
thus resulting in the purchase. The lovebirds have now reportedly decided is utterly insufficient to their needs and they're getting a new one. But anyway, now sitting with those palm trees blowing in the breeze in front of them with the benefit, I guess, of 2020 hindsight, I suppose. She now sees her time on that show as exploitative. Specifically, she claims that she now objects to how she was objectified on the show. Before the tapings of the show, all the girls, we would line up and there were different stations for having your lashes put on or your extensions put in or the padding in your bra. We were even given spray tan vouchers each week because there was a very cookie cutter idea of precisely what we should look like. It was solely about beauty and not necessarily about brains. And when I look back at that time, I will never, I'll never forget this one detail. Because moments before we'd get on stage, there was a woman who ran the show and she would be there backstage and I can still hear her. She couldn't properly pronounce my last name at the time and I knew who she was talking to because she would go, Markel, suck it in. Markel, suck it in. I was thankful for the job, but not for how it made me feel which was not smart. And by the way, I was surrounded by smart women on that stage with me, but that wasn't the focus of why we were there. And I would end up leaving with this pit in my stomach, knowing that I was so much more than what was being objectified on the stage. I didn't like feeling forced to be all looks and little substance. Oh, my God. So much to dissect here. First, the laughable notion that she did not know what she was getting herself into when she took a job in which one's only mission is to look tan, wear false eyelashes and wear a skimpy, shiny dress while opening a suitcase as if she was shocked, shocked to find out that suitcase number 24 did not actually have the nuclear codes in it, which needed her deciphering. That she wasn't going to be discussing Alzheimer's and the chromosomal missegregation caused by the amyloid beta peptide. She knew exactly what she was getting herself into on that job. And it was no surprise to her that they wanted her to look as good as possible while doing it. What she is trying to con us on now is whether she enjoyed it. She loved every minute of it. She wanted to be objectified. She wanted the adulation, just like she still wants it to this day. Miss I Just Want My Privacy now has a podcast, a Netflix show about her in production, a bio coming out by her spouse that's about to hit the shelves. She gave a lengthy interview to The Cut of New York Magazine just the other week, worked with the authors of that book, as I just mentioned, and just today was on the cover of Variety. The Princess of Privacy is actually desperate, desperate for publicity, to be noticed, to matter in a way she never did while suitcase girl number 24 or while acting on the cable show Suits. And the way you know, the way you know she never really minded the objectification that now makes her such a victim is by what she did after Deal or No Deal. In her podcast, she stoically says, I quit after a year. Things were so rough. All the opening and closing and opening and closing. Sometimes the little suitcase latch must have gotten stuck. Can you imagine? Mike Rowe is coming up in a minute. Talk about dirty jobs. The horror this poor woman suffered as they put the mascara on her. (laughs) Anyway, what did she do after she fled 
this horrible, objectifying job? Did she run for Senate? Go to law school? Volunteer at a senior citizen facility? No. She started a website in which she posted half-naked pictures of herself to celebrate her before then going to work on suits in which she regularly appeared in her underwear. (laughs) Was that objectification? Maybe it's only objectification like if you're carrying a suitcase. Flight attendants of the world, beware. Suitcase in hand and approving looks come your way. Bimbo, slut. Once you stow the bag, hike the skirt and enjoy the leering. (laughs) Why is she lying about this? Why? Why can't she just say, I'm so grateful to those producers who helped make me look amazing night after night and gave me my start in acting because it's more important to her to be a victim. The same theme of every single one of her podcasts and of her life. Find successful, empowered women, reduce them to their lowest moments, and then claim to have taught a lesson about how terrible and especially sexist America is. See, I can relate too, because the evil woman at Deal or No Deal told me to suck my stomach in. The job was to be a model. (laughs) If you don't want to be told to suck in your stomach at the office, go work at a bank. Get a law degree. Do something else, but don't join the beauty business and then claim you were exploited by people who didn't care for your thoughts on inflation. (laughs) It's the same thing she did to the royal family. Same thing. Sign up for a job you know damn well is going to require certain things of you and then play the victim when they do require those things. I had to walk behind Kate. I lost my voice. In both cases, she knew exactly what she was getting herself into. But rather than just be honest about it, she's always morally superior. This is one of the most privileged women on the planet. She was building a career as an actress. It was a middling career, but she was getting a steady paycheck. She seemed to be enjoying it. She then set her sights on several rich, famous British men to marry as a means of taking her D-list fame to the next level. They all rejected her. This is all laid out in Tom Bauer's book, Revenge and other books. Then she landed the mother load, Prince Harry. She moved onto the palace grounds, was given a staff and security. She wore crown jewels at her wedding, at which George Clooney and Oprah Winfrey and the queen sat supportively looking at her. And she still, still wants to play the poor me card. The royal family was racist toward me. Mariah Carey called me a diva. Me. I was treated like a bimbo by deal or no deal. You see, I can still be your embattled survivor, a feminist icon, a triumphant queen. Except she's not. And she knows she's not. She's not special. She's not a feminist icon. She gave up everything for a man. Her country, her religion, her career, her family, her friends. She did it because she's a social climber. That was more important to her. And when she was outed for the conniving, manipulative, empty suit she is, she lashed out, claimed she wanted privacy, and moved to Montecito, dragging the prince out of the royal family with her. This woman is a fraud, and people get it. A poll this past summer showed the majority of Americans now disapprove of Meghan Markle. Another poll showed just 26 percent of Brits approve of her. It's not something a new publicity team can solve, nor can any fact checker. Only Meghan Markle can solve it. Stop the nonsense. 
Stop with the obsessive image crafting. We don't feel sorry for you. Take a step back. Be quiet for a while and do something meaningful that is not about you. Then maybe we will feel inspired to do something other than mock you. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Mike Rowe is an executive producer and an Emmy award-winning host. So happy to have him back on the program. Mike Rowe, welcome back. Megan, that was that was awesome. I'm just sitting here wondering if you have any thoughts on Meghan Markle. <laughs> <laughs> you are the perfect guest for out of this segment. I you've spent your life immersing yourself in quote dirty jobs and amongst the great Americans who happily, willingly, patriotically perform them with nary a complaint, usually about having to do them. This woman is on television back in these tough, tough 25 year old days in front of millions of people with people adorning her with accoutrements to make her look special and fabulous. And even now as a princess wants us to feel sorry for her you poor thing oh my god when you, you walk to suck your through stomach a in. storm keep your head held high right <laughs> i get it you know what you should have taken it one one click further i mean she's really close i think to seeing her name sort of turned into a verb and you could do mm. it right to like to commit a markle to be guilty of a markle right needs to become something i don't know what exactly it is but you know, in all seriousness, listening to you talk about her like that, it I was struck by the the one thing that ninety-five percent of all effective liars have in common is an audience who really wants to believe them. And so, you know, I I really I don't know what to say in the wake of her ascendancy other than she was ordained, you know, to some degree, she was ordained by George Clooney and Oprah Winfrey. And mm -hmm. to a larger extent, she was ordained by us. We we watched, we looked, we we bared witness. And now we're just wondering <laughs> what exactly did we witness? Right, right. right. What did we buy exactly? What What is it we signed on for? Um, 
you know, there was a moment where the Brits and we saw Meghan and Harry and she seemed demure. That was what she was playing. She was projecting demure and the faithful partner. And it was like, oh, this is so sweet. Good for Harry. You know, we all loved Harry. It was like the forgotten heir or spare. And um, then all hell broke loose. You know, then like her incessant narcissism and need for attention and need to cause drama. All of it started to manifest and people started to see the real her. And I do wonder, like, I don't think anybody's really listening to the podcast. People talk about, oh, it's number one on Spotify. That just shows the number of people who are signing up, like new people who have clicked on it. People like me sure. who are trying, to, who are just going to talk about it in the news. This, I don't know who her fan base is, but I do wonder what makes someone with all of her many gifts so in love with victimhood, so adherent to it, so incapable of moving past it or just simply inventing it where it doesn't exist. You know, I mean, I'm not a shrink, but if I were to put her on the couch, I would just say that for whatever reason, the synapses fire in a sequence that allows that feeling to feel good. It feels good. You know, we can train ourselves to feel good about virtually any activity. And you mentioned dirty jobs, and that was a big lesson from that show. You know, job satisfaction really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the job, or at least not nearly as much as we ascribe to it. People can be miserable in any line of work. People can be happy in any line of work. And the amount of grace you find uh, in in a septic tank technician is really no different than the amount of grace you might find with any given celebrity or any given royal or any given politician. We we have it within our purview to to control that which makes us happy. And a lot of people feel happy when uh, not just when the light is shown on them. It's not just narcissism, although that's certainly a thing. It's um, it's a combination of narcissism and victimhood. And I think just the just the the speed with which the cycle unfolds every day, we need to see something new every day. And and she serves it up. You know, she's she's part of the cobble that serves up that stuff on the menu that, you know, some people find appetizing. But what can you say? There's no accounting for taste. There are plenty of people out Uh there who can't believe dirty jobs has been on the air for 20 years. And some days I'm among them, too. But I know if I said to you, Mike, give me your top five. Just give me you give me five of the top of your head. I'm sure five guys doing jobs that, you know, aren't necessarily doing a podcast from a palace out in Montecito uh, who have had to overcome a lot in their lives and have an attitude of being grateful, of being glad to be here, being thankful for the opportunity. You could do it in a second, in a second. Right. It's like. That's yeah, what's inspirational you, I, to Americans. That's what people get moved by. Well, a lot do, right? But look, he, here's the trap for for you and me and everybody in a position that has some kind of platform and has some measure of of influence. It's it's so tempting to paint with a broad brush, right? It's so tempting to to make a proclamation. I if I've learned anything at this point in my life, it's that two, three, sometimes four things are all true at the same time. And 
the fact is, there are many people in this country who are still inspired by an attitude of gratitude. And there are many mm -hmm. people in this country who are inspired by other attitudes. And so I never really know who's listening. I'm rarely sure exactly to whom I'm speaking. But you and I are on the same page. My foundation awards work ethic scholarships. I have a 12-point sweat pledge that you have to sign in order to apply for, for money to be, to be trained. And the very first tenant on that sweat pledge says, I believe I have hit the greatest lottery of all time. I live in the United States. Uh, I am free. I am grateful above all things. And if you, if you can't agree to that, then I personally can't, can't help you. <laughs> and right. I, and I right. you know, we talked about this two years ago. I, I, I get in arguments every year. Parents usually call and say, wait a minute, why does my kid have to sign this thing in order to get a scholarship from your foundation? And I said, because I said so. And they say, well, what do you mean? Because you said so. And I'm like, look, no harm, no foul. It's just that if your kid's not grateful, if your kid isn't interested in having a conversation about basic work ethic, delayed gratification, a decent attitude, then, madam, this particular pile of free money is probably not for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's all there is to it. No harm, exactly. no foul. Move on. You don't need me in your life. No, no worries at all. I have to say it's like that the, the the her pretending that, oh, my God, this job is solely about beauty. It's like so false. Like, like it's like Christy Turlington in Victoria's Secret. Like, oh my God, I'm just now yeah. realizing they want to look at my body. Like, what is she talking about? I, right. I, I guess you know you 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 want to eat your cake and you still want to have it. You want to be able <laughs> to elevate certain principles, uh, certain certain virtues, but at the same time, you, you want to embrace certain vices. You know, it's, it's part of the human condition. You know, I, I, I actually don't think virtue and vice are, are as opposite as we think. You know, I think I they're agree. two sides of the same coin, right? And, nor you know, is there any shame in being a model or being in the beauty business, like doing something that, you know, self-promotional in that way, or, you know, where you're open about wanting people to look at you for a living. I look at most of these models and I'm like, if I looked like that, I'd want people to pay to look at me too. I did the same thing, but in Oppositeville, like the first season of Dirty Jobs 20 years ago, we labeled uh, <laughs> feces from every species because we went through this giant scatological romp where I was just literally either crawling through a sewer or in a septic tank or yes. covered with some matter of effluvium. And, you know, <laughs> people were like, gosh, this is so exploitative. I'm like, what are you talking about exploitative? They're like, well, it's just, I mean, you just seem obsessed with this one thing. I'm like, well, you're watching, right? Millions and millions of people are watching a B-list celebrity crawl through a river of crap with a guy who makes his living in that very river. And we're learning some things about who this guy is and what's important to him. And we're learning about his job. But, you know, I did what I had to do in that first season. I had to embrace something that, frankly, was the opposite of fashion, but it was still a construct. It was still a thing. And on Dirty Job, you know, by the time we got to season two, feces from every species gave way uh, to this incredible obsession with animal husbandry, wherein I coaxed the sperm 
from virtually all creatures, great and small, and then artificially inseminated them on camera. And this, oh God. you know, horrified people. It's like some sort of I don't a even German... want to. Should we pause at coaxed the sperm from all the species? <laughs> coaxed? You know, Megan, it, it, we all have to approach the task uh, in our own way. I like to think of it as coaxing, you know, didn't always work. Sometimes you have to light a candle. Sometimes you have to <laughs> tell them a story. <laughs> How high did you have to you, pull the dress up there, Mike? You know, look, you do what you have to do. Sometimes you have to show a little leg, right? Sometimes you do. Um, yeah, but but it's, you know, our industry, we, we all have to decide what's authentic. We all have to decide um, what we're selling. Right. And if we if we can at least latch on to something that's 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 steadfast, something that we know is going to be like you said, gratitude that will come in and out of favor. But we're going to live long enough to see it come back into favor. I'm sure of it. Um, fashion has its moments. Victimhood is having a pretty good run right now. Uh, narcissism you know, right there, neck and neck with it. So all these things I think are 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 constantly at 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 war, right? They're 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 always out there, and society is always free to glom on to this, that, or the other. And we're just in a time right now where there's a lot of gloaming, a lot of coaxing, as you would say. Many people I, committing markles right and left. Yeah, markle um, to markle to to be a markle or to markle some like he pulled a markle is is That's from right. the height of privilege to claim victimhood. That's what it is. There it's you, done. That 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 smells like a markle. Do you smell that? That was <laughs> definitely smell season one dirty I jobs. smell a markle. Can I tell you I'm desperate to connect Megan Markle with my stepfather. My stepfather worked a dirty job for his entire life. He was a plumber. And um, he never graduated from high school. Never, never mind go to college. But he has more wisdom than Meghan Markle will ever have in the, in the course of her, I hope, long life. Um, and he, he, this is what he, I know he would tell her because he said he uses this line sometimes: "When you're born, you, God gives you a shit pie, mm -hmm. and every once in a while, you got to eat a piece of it." <laughs> All right, boom. Look, I done. need. I need to talk to this guy. I mean, I've been saying a version of that. It's also in the sweat pledge. Like life, you know, somebody is going to hand you a shit sandwich at some point, maybe every day, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, whatever. And when that happens, you're either going to bite it or you're going to go, ew, that's not for me. And that is going to inform a whole lot of things that happen in your life after that. Mm -hmm. You know, th th there are people who still volunteer for every crappy job there is. They they come in early. They stay light. They stay late. They they take a bite of the poop sandwich when it's their turn. Those people are having a pretty good run right now. Those people are in demand like never before. And I think it's because they are fewer than they've ever been in number. Mm -hmm. No. So, again, you get to choose. You know, work ethic is important to me because unlike your, you know, your your eye color or your your basic looks or your ethnicity or your star sign or your blood type or any other thing, this is something you can control. You can choose to be Meghan Markle. You can choose to be your dad or your stepdad or whoever you're talking about. You can yeah. you can make these are conscious choices. 
and they will inform everything that happens to you. Mm -hmm. They really will. And they will predict what kind of a life you have. I mean, really, you can be somebody who's in the dirty job, who's literally surrounded in shit for a living, who chooses to look on the bright side and find pearls of wisdom when they come to you. Or you can be somebody who's living in a palace and never learn anything. All right, stand by. The wonderful Mike Rowe is staying with us. Uh, Very thrilled to have him for the show today. Don't go away. Plenty more pearls of wisdom coming your way. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Mike, one of my producers found this clip from your podcast and thought it was important, especially given what was discussed in the A Block, that you and I spend some time on it. Um, That's the only intro I'm going to give to what we're about to listen to. Here's Mike Rowe on his airplane bathroom story. (laughs) I walk into the bathroom and I swear it looked like it looked like a crap balloon had exploded. (laughs) This was shameful. I mean, there was crap on the mirror. How did this happen? What what happened? You know. Anyway, I'm standing appalled in this restroom in first yes. class on this okay. flight to the point where I was like, obviously, I'm not touching. It's not, none of this is my problem. What yeah. I should have done is immediately left, told the flight attendant that right. something criminal had gone down <laughs> at 37,000 feet. Uh, all right. In the first class. A bowel crime scene. Yes. But I didn't. Instead, I flushed the toilet. There's toilet paper stuck to the back of the commode, partially used. Okay. Come on. I swear. Mm. It it was awful, Chuck. There's no need to. Trust me. It was awful. Anyway, (laughs) I opened the door and standing there is one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And two (laughs) things happened. Really, three things happened. The first thing is, I think she recognized me. I think she, or if she didn't recognize me, she knew that she had seen me somewhere before. Gotcha. So you see that look of, of, of acknowledgement and awareness flash across her face. And it's a beautiful face, right? And then she smiles as if to say, Hey, aren't you that guy? Or (laughs) no idea what she's in store for. Just no idea. The second thing that happens is the funk. The indescribable stench of that awful bathroom comes wafting by me and hits her right smack in the right, right in the face. So now she's got it on her lips, too. Right now she's dealing with this thing. Right. So that all happens in the same second. So what's going through her brain? Hey, I know that guy. Oh, my God. That smells like the end of days. And then 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 the worst thing. She cranes her head slightly to the right. Just to look beyond me. And uh-huh. she takes in everything I've just described. <laughs> That's horrifying. Horrible. I know. It's so stupid, but we we just went. It was Thomas Crapper's birthday last month. Yeah. The guy who many people believe invented the toilet, but actually yeah. didn't. And to celebrate it, 
I read a story by David Sedaris called Big Boy about a giant turd that he couldn't get down the toilet. Very funny stories <laughs> in the New Yorker decades ago. And then I told this story that just happened to me a couple of months back. And it's just, you know, I mean, and, and I've gotten thousands, Megan, thousands of people writing in to tell me about some misadventure in the bathroom, <laughs> some horrible failure of the O-ring upon which so much of our dignity depends. Like every adult I know has a story about some time where they crap their pants. And <laughs> my story was just the unfairness of being able to deal with somebody else's nightmare and suddenly having to take the blame this woman by the way she looked like one of the wrigley's double mint twins remember oh, yeah, double your sure. pleasure double she was so that pretty was i just couldn't believe how pretty she was i'm sitting there looking at her at the and, and thinking gosh you're pretty and she's thinking huh i didn't think a i didn't think a man could make a stink like that and live <laughs> knowing full well that <laughs> some minute. son of a bitch somebody in first class had gone in there and done that and so Did the it? rest of the trip is really just about me looking around i understand didn't you say to her before she walked in beware it's awful in there it wasn't me yeah but i I was forget it mate i mean i i tried my my last words to her when she looked over my shoulder and saw that crime scene i said that wasn't me right (laughs) Right, but you you have to put but but if you put yourself in her place She's standing outside of the door. She hears the toilet flush because like a dummy, <laughs> I flush the toilet. But I but but I don't clean up the rest of the place. No, and I can't get ew. rid of the stink. So, you know, if a guy opens the door and comes out of the bathroom after you hear a flush, you might assume, you know, yeah. that, <laughs> that there's a the difference, him. though. Anyhow. There's a difference between men and women like men can they can pee standing up. So it's like you walk into that crime scene and you're like. I'm good. I can aim it. I don't really have to touch anything in here. Sure. I'll use my hand sanitizer and get back yeah. to my seat. A woman, it's like, especially on an airplane, you don't want to do the squat. I don't like the squat anyway. The squat ruins no. the toilet seat for the rest of us. It gets the pee all over there. I've yep. been sitting on toilet seats my whole life, even public toilet seats. I've never gotten any weird diseases. So I'm just saying it's safe and you you won't fall. You don't fall in the toilet. You don't fall in somebody else's pee. Sit on the seat, but clean the seat first. But anyway... Well, that's and not an option for somebody like me. So somebody like you can stand and aim. Somebody like me, I got to clean it up. I got no choice. I go into a situation like that. You know, I had a flight attendant tell me, it's like the reason we we put this thing on during turbulence isn't really because it's dangerous. It's because men who go into the restroom during turbulence don't don't have a hope. I mean, you're standing there like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're standing there. <laughs> and it's just like a shotgun. It's going everywhere. And guys, they just, you know, look. That actually makes sense. It's like a like a weapon in there, like a fire hose. If we get a little turbulent, at least we we're safe. Yeah. We, we know exactly where it's going to go. There's no yeah, real you're risk down. if you're, you're sitting. You're anchored. It, it'd be yeah, a good anchored. rule, actually. Everybody should be forced to sit when they're uh, taking care of business at 37,000. Well, you were also talking, forgive me for staying on the toilet humor, but it's just so dead on. You were also talking about how on the airplane, when somebody lets out some gas bomb and then oh, the, yeah. the, the suspects start to get identified, like you, you look around, like who looks like slightly uncomfortable, whose stomach like is growling, elevator. you know? Right. It's like an elevator, only worse. You're, you know, because you're just you're just completely at the mercy of your circumstance. I'll tell yes. you what a child I am about this. Again, this is like the early seasons of Dirty Job. This is where my mind was. I found, have you seen those little fart machines? Like you can yeah, of press a button. I have three children, okay. including two boys. 
All right. Well, somebody had come out with one that was really portable and had a pretty good range on it. So there's a little <laughs> Velcro behind it. So what I did was, <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling you this. I'm on a flight coming back, I think, from Cleveland, and I stuck it under seat 2A. I just stuck no it under there. And I'm sitting way. back in like 5D, okay? And I've got the remote. Oh this, guy, this guy sits down in 2A and I wait until we're at, you know, we're at altitude and everybody's kind of settled in. And I hit the little button on the remote and this thing goes <laughs> and everybody snaps their head around and looks at this poor guy. And oh he's looking God. around going, hey, hey, I don't, uh, you know, I don't. <laughs> and I just I, for whatever reason, I just tortured him the whole flight. Every 10 <laughs> or 15 minutes, clean? I hit that button. <laughs> Eventually, he just got up and <laughs> moved. I was going to say, you'd have to stand up and be like, somebody's messing with me. <laughs> this reminds but you can't. Me. Nobody's going to believe you. No, right. And you're not thinking someone put an imaginary fart machine underneath my <laughs> a remote control fart machine. No one. Who would Certainly do not that? Mike Rowe sitting back. Oh, wait a minute. Wait no. a minute. I got it. That's the Markle. That's the Markle? That's the, <laughs> the Markle is the thing that happened. It doesn't make any sense, but it's just a funny thing to describe. If, if you get blamed for somebody else's mess, then somebody just, just tagged you with a Markle. He pulled a, well, a Farkle. Um, let, me, let me tell you this. So we have a friend of the family who we know from the beach and she's older now. She's, I don't know. She, I think she's in her early eighties, but, um, She's always been one of those prim and proper ladies, like just together. You know, she's always mm -hmm. got the perfect sweater set on. She's beautiful. Mm -hmm. She's fit. And um, I think this is more when she was in her like maybe mid 70s. But she went on an airplane and the woman next to her kept blowing off. That's what Nana used to call it. My Nana. He's blowing off. And, uh, <laughs> and so she presses the overhead call button. The, the flight attendant comes over and our friend says, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to move me. This woman here has terrible flatulence. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, that's a, that's a boss move. That is. That a is. Boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, How I do you mean, respond? We, <laughs> right? What do you I say mean, if you're the accused? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what do you do if you're just one of the people in the kill zone? Like in proximity, <laughs> like, do you raise your hand and go, you know what? I'd like to be moved too, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I, uh, I'd like to move too, please. And then <laughs> just like that first they class do. is empty. <laughs> Don't leave me. Don't leave me here. And, and then there's the one person going, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't care. No, I'm good. You know what? I like it. <laughs> Keeping it real up here. Never oh my god in my life i got one more funny story about this um back in my fox news days i was on the air i was anchoring america's newsroom with hammer mm -hmm. and i know you, you were just on the show now now it's I dana was. perino uh, but hammer and i launched that it was a new show back in 1997 first first anchor gig ever and um we were, i was hosting a debate between like a right-wing radio host and a left-wing radio host and the righty was accusing the lefty of being soft on terror you know this is again this is a uh, yeah wait not not 97 2007 and yeah 97 i was practicing law anyway so 2007 and the iraq war is going on and the, and the lefty was feeling defensive of the democrats and we were about to go to break and he goes we're gonna fight the terrorists no matter where they are no matter where they're farting fighting <laughs> <laughs> well i i died i died <laughs>
<laughs> we had to go to break. I couldn't get it back together. <laughs> and as soon as we go to break, my phone lights up. And of course, it's my mom. She can't even speak. She's laughing so hard because we all have toilet humor in our family. I always say I have a sense of humor of a 12 year old boy. Still at this age, I still do. I'm so glad I'm in such good company, Mike. <laughs> do you think Dana Perino talks about this stuff? Definitely not. No. I don't think so. I mean, Dana's no. one of the few people I can think of who probably really has never farted. Um, <laughs> and if he has, I don't know that I really want to know about it. But She and Melania, the Trump claims she's never even gone. Number two. It's like, nope, didn't happen. Got her her own bathroom. And she just doesn't do it. I don't know. She's this freak of nature. Oh, my God. Well, look, somewhere in here, if there's a if there's a shred of intellect, we can glom onto to justify this this scatological descent. You know, I mean, you know, for Meghan Markle to talk about the indignity of being asked to suck in her gut versus being able to laugh hysterically about the fact that all of us at some point in time are going to lose control over the one thing we desperately want to control and we're going to have to pay the cost for it to be able to laugh you know i mean that that's the fundamental thing yeah, you can point. you can laugh at the fact that t that somebody told you to suck in your gut or you can complain about it you can laugh at the fact that you just walked into a bathroom at 37,000 feet that had been destroyed. Not your fault, but you're yeah. still going to get tagged for it. That's either, you know, in that moment, I'm either a victim and I did feel like one. I was like, damn it, yes. that this is not my problem. Right. <laughs> and yet it was. Or or you can take the 37,000 foot view, if you will, and say, you know something? That's freaking funny. That's just funny. <laughs> It's that awful. happens. It happens all the time. It's even everyone. funnier because you're famous. I mean, it's even better that people know you. And now, like, oh, there there are people who didn't hear your podcast. They didn't hear this podcast. Who so they're out there at this moment, being like, Mike Rowe dropped a bomb on my airplane in first class. It was disgusting. The man, you know, he's been doing the dirty jobs too long. Like he's decided to just immerse himself in dirt. It was too perfect, Megan. It was like of all. It's not like Brad Pitt walked out of there or Tom Hanks, the dirty jobs guy, you know, at the the the, the guy known for feces from every species. Of course, he smells like that. Now you look of hypocritical, too, because it's like get in there and clean it. For God's sake, you're always preaching to the rest of us. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I don't know. I've like I'm one of those people who I don't. I don't like wipe down the whole airplane seat when I sit on it. You know, they're they're always giving you the wipes now when you get on the plane. I Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Because like that person came back to his or her seat and touched everything. And then maybe I sat there and put my pretzels on it. I don't know. But I you'd still kind of feel like the more off eating off that toilet, Megan, than eating it, off the tray at this. point. Well, that's the thing. But the more. The more you ingest that's bad for you, the better off you are, like your microbiome and all that. We just we, This whole week, we've been talking about eating shit and how it's the wave yeah. of the future. There's going to be a pill where you eat somebody else's shit and it completely changes your life for the better. Don't try this at home. <laughs> this is I swear to God, I can't, I'm, I'm just thinking back 10 years ago, I'm watching Fox. I'm watching you on America's Newsroom. This put together former lawyer sitting there in her Armani suit <laughs> reading the prompter absolutely killing it and now i'm talking to you and i'm I, i'm actually worried where you're going to take the conversation next <laughs> i honestly don't know where we go i can't believe that megan kelly of all people is just literally <laughs> could drag me through my own Look lower gi this. tract this beautiful work that my producer kelly put together for us to discuss we completely blown it <laughs> she 
she, she literally like, wiped your own was. ass with Kelly's hard fought <laughs> notes. She wants she wants us to talk about student loans and the election and oh there's all sorts of fun thoughts on here. Oh, MSNBC, they compare January 6th to 9-11. I actually do want to talk about those Nimrods over there on MSNBC. Let's go there. Uh, right. we don't have to talk politics exactly, but this comparison is beyond it's Nicole Wallace, fake Republican Nicole Wallace, um, SOT 10. <laughs> You know, that Mueller ethos emanated, I'm, I'm sure, from his own personal code, but also post 9-11. And I worked in the administration in which he served as FBI director. And what he sort of gave birth to in the lexicon was we, the FBI would never again, first of all, fail to sync up with the CIA and all sorts of artificial and, and real walls were torn down. And they would never again fail to connect the dots. I've not heard one utterance of connecting the dots from Christopher Wray in the days after the deadliest attack on the U.S. Capitol in our, you know, in history. Nicole, I think that's right. And I think if you look at the scale in terms of the threat to democracy, I mean, 9-11 was a tragedy. We lost thousands of lives in a horrific way that we still mourn to this day. But when you look at something that is an attack on democracy, something that could actually bring about a fundamental change to American governance as we understand it, 9-11 is nothing compared to January 6th. And the fact that the FBI and the rest of the government, if they are not on the same sort of war footing that we were on in the weeks and months and years after 9-11, shame on everyone. That was disgraced FBI agent Peter Strzok responding. The worst. It was worse than 9-11. Worse of a, more of a threat to democracy. Worse than the War of 1812 when the Capitol was, oh, what's the word, burned, I think? Not to mention the, the FALN attack. Back in the late 70s, I think it was, where they attacked, they actually shot five congressmen. Worse than that? OK. <clears throat> Look, I, you know what? If 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 we don't want to politicize it, um, then why don't we just return to the last topic briefly? And let me ask you this, because I got somebody asked me this question the other day and I loved it. They said, if you if you could have any power like a superhero, what would it be? And I said, I would like to be able to know that when I when I'm watching television, that with a flick of my fingers or a wiggle of my nose, like Elizabeth Montgomery on Bewitched, right? I would like to be able to make anybody I'm watching at any time poop their pants. That's my superpower. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, as I was sitting there watching that clip that you played, I thought that'd be a great time. Right in the middle of such an outrageous statement, I, I just kind of give my nose a wrinkle and Peter Strzok poops his pants on live TV. And he has to deal with it. Right. He has to stand there as he's saying this ridiculous thing and his trousers fill up with his own scat. He has to deal with it. And everybody around him gets to smell it, too. And the other one over there who was asking the question, she, too, she poops right up her back, right as she's asking the question. That's my superpower. I sit at home and I watch TV. And when I hear stuff like that, I wiggle my nose and people poop their pants. I honestly think. Brilliant. Right I honestly think. I think word would spread that, you know, something, something's something's going on in the universe, people. And we, when we say <laughs> stupid things on the air and when we lie, we poop our pants. We don't know why it's happening. But, you Very know, a theory careful. starts to emerge that the dirty jobs guy is sitting home with this new superpower and he's wielding it like an axe. And it's horrifying. <laughs> That's, That's the last thing dream. you want is to find out that Mike Rowe is a fan of your show. <laughs> I'm watching. I'm watching. And, you know, I have a finely tuned BS meter. And if I hear something that doesn't line up, 
Things are going to get real poopy real fast, Megan. I'd rather see the shit coming out of his bottom than out of his mouth the way ah. he had to there. It's constant. Just imagine during sweeps. How much fun this would be during sweeps. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to say, I am sick of people making that comparison. It really is shit. I'm oh, sick of God. people. But just don't use 9-11. Just stop it. You know the way we kind of have a rule in journalism. Don't use the Holocaust. You know, like. Don't compare this to the Holocaust. I actually had this discussion with my EP, Steve Krakauer, because we were talking about um, Mark Cuban and how he was blowing off the Uyghur genocide over in China. He has no problem yeah. with, you know, doing business with, with China. And uh, I was having this discussion with Steve about like, it's does he care about the Holocaust? And, and there's just kind of a rule in journalism. Just don't compare anything to the Holocaust, period. Same thing with 9-11, as far as I'm concerned. Just stop. You don't compare. Don't compare January 6th. Don't compare anything. It's still too soon. Right. We've got 3000 dead Americans, children, innocents. We all lived through it. You know, there's only the youngest amongst us has no active memory of this. So just stop it. It's what I said before. It's you don't know who's listening. Right. It's really easy for you and me to have whatever conversation we want to have. And because we both kind of, you know, enjoy what we're doing, it gets smaller and smaller. It's easy to forget who's listening. And I remember about. This would have been 2006, probably. Um, I was sitting around a campfire with a bunch of people, and we were arguing about 9-11. We were arguing about something, something to do, probably some crazy conspiracy nonsense, right? And um, everybody had their own say, and things got really heated. And then one of the guys who was sitting there, who I had just met a couple of nights ago, said, well, my wife was on flight 93. And let me tell you what I think. And in that moment, everything changes. The conversation changes. The tenor and tone changes. The air is sucked out of the space. And we all feel like idiots because our opinions are garbage compared to the man whose wife was on one of those planes. You know, I don't think either one of these clowns were thinking who's watching, who's listening, who was there. Mm. Oh, you, you gave me the chills with that. Well said. All right. Much more to go over with Mike Rowe. Um, we're going to get to Kelly's outline because we love Kelly. It's just sad. Kelly's also in Canada. She's up there with Canadian Debbie. She also married a damn Canadian, moved away. These are my friends and longtime colleagues from Fox News who I just can't let go of, even if they move to another country. So we'll get to Kelly's good work next and uh, talk more with Mike Rowe as he stays with us for another block. And remember, folks, you can find The Megyn Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. The full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly, or the audio podcast is available uh, on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast for free. And there you'll find our full archives, including the first time Mike was on, as he mentioned, episode 45, way back in January of 2021. This is before we had video. We had a great, great conversation. And uh, I just fell in love with the guy. You can see why. I mean, I don't I don't think I can do a better hour of programming than the one we just did. We covered everything. <laughs> the Markle, the shit pie, the, <laughs> the magical shitting power you can unleash on your enemies. Would love to know your thoughts on all of it. You can email me now, Megan, M-E-G-Y-N, at MeganKelly.com. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. <gasps> 
This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Something you said um, on Hannity recently jumped out at me, Mike, because you were talking about the importance of blue collar workers and how, you know, we sort of enjoy the fruits of their labor without understanding all that's gone into this thing that we wind up enjoying. And it reminded me of something I mentioned my Nana in the first hour. Um, Mm -hmm. She lived to 101. She died in 2016 and she was born in 1915. And she was poor and she remembered the day they got electricity. She remembered sitting there next to the light switch, turning it on and off and on and off and saying, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And her yeah. father um, said, that costs money. Stop that. Right? Like he's saying to the kids, like, what are you doing? But you've been kind of making that point. Like we do sort of take advantage, whether it's the phone or the light switch or turning on the automobile of these these jobs um, that that all the jobs that led into that moment for us, we kind of forget about the importance of these blue collar workers at our own peril. Yeah, it's a curious uh, flaw in our well, it's a fault in the stars, right? This 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 way that we grow to resent the very thing we depend on. And I think it's because it scares us. I think because when we flip on the switch and the lights don't come on, we don't know what to do. You know, when I hop onto the Zoom call to do the interview with Megan, but the connection is weak, I, I don't know how to fix it. When I when I flush the toilet, but the crap doesn't go away like it's supposed to, I, you know, I'm at the mercy of the plumber. And right now, Megan, a plumber can't get out here for three or four days. That's That's how lopsided the workforce is. And that's why this issue really matters. It's not a question of, oh, the poor employees or the poor employers, right? We're, 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 this thing always gets ground down into some kind of labor dispute. My point has always been what, what's happening in the country is 300 million people or so are no longer sufficiently gobsmacked by the miracles that surround us, like your Nana. We've, mm-hmm. we've lost our wonder for these things we rely upon. And that makes us anxious. And that anxiety leads us to actually devalue and sometimes resent the very people upon whom we rely. And so it's a weird circle. And you can see how it plays out in policy. You can see, for instance, that shop class was removed from high school, just out and out removed in the 70s and 80s. It's not a coincidence today that those vocations are the very jobs currently lacking in the market, nor is it a coincidence, in my opinion, that student debt is now at $1.7 trillion. We're still telling a whole generation of kids, 
that they're screwed if they don't go get their four-year paper. In the meantime, and this is my my new thing. It's not a new thing, but I'm really uh, I'm obsessed not with the unemployment rate, but with the labor participation rate. And the thing I was talking to Hannity about was the same thing I talked to Nick Eberstadt about, who came on my podcast uh, just last week to talk about the existence of 11 million jobs that virtually nobody wants, juxtaposed with uh, 7 million able-bodied men between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not only not working, that's not the problem. They are affirmatively not looking for jobs. So you push all of that together, it really does make for a very disappointing kind of uh, bully base, right? And I'm not sure precisely what it says about our country, but your Nana was on to something. As a people, we're either impressed and gobsmacked by the miracles around us, or we're bored. We are so materialistic now that we hold up the college degree and whatever white collar job might come after it as the holy grail. You know, you could be, you could be a hedge fund manager and make $60 million a year, easily $100 million a year. You could. It's happening sure. even right now. And then you'll be successful. You know, Kanye West was giving a, an interview, one of his, you know, many the other day. And he was like, why didn't you introduce me as a billionaire? I'm a billionaire. I want to be introduced as a billionaire. It's like not as an artist, not as what an entrepreneur, but like I'm a bill. It's all about the money, the money. And I don't know. Is it that we're just no longer holding up blue collar jobs as something of value, something of respect, something meaningful? And so people aren't going into those jobs or that we're just we've abandoned all training. We've abandoned the pathways. This, that and about five or six other things as well. Look, part of it, too, is the varsity blues routine. I mean, I'm, I'm, think about the pressure of raising your three kids, right? Think about what it feels like to not want to screw them up. That's so hardwired into our DNA that as parents, you know, we look around and say, well, is there a playbook? Is there just a short list, a rudimentary list of things I can do so as to not screw my kids up? and yeah, I, I I think there is, but somehow get them to college wound up on that list. And so parents are under enormous pressure. Guidance counselors, in many cases, are getting bonused out on their ability to transition kids into four-year schools, not apprenticeships, not trade schools, not community colleges. We've got our thumb on the scale in a very real way, and it's created it's created more pressure than I think I can understand. I mean, to be 17 years old and to be given a chance to sign on the dotted line, borrow 30, 50, 80, $100,000. I mean, we don't put that kind of pressure on people to buy a house or really anything. It's, it's really amazing. And I, and I don't say any of that because I favor some sort of forgiveness of student loans. I don't. But I am mindful of of the incredible pressure that trickles down and the unbelievable PR. You know, college needed a PR campaign back in the 70s and 80s. We, We genuinely needed more people to go in pursuit of some of this thing we call higher education. But but we bitched it all up. You know, we didn't just make the case for a four year school. We made the case at the expense of all other forms of education. Mm-hmm. So now 
there's stigmas and stereotypes and myths and misperceptions and all kind of bullcrap that keep people from pursuing many of these 11 million open jobs right now that paradoxically are the very jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. So, 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 so let's talk about, talk about that. Why? Why are those 7 million guys, able-bodied and young, 25 to 54, sitting on the sidelines? Well, to be fair, my friends on the left, when I ask them that question, will tell me reflexively and instinctively that it's because the jobs suck, the pay is lousy, and those greedy and rapacious corporate overlords could fix this problem if they simply were more generous vis-a-vis their remuneration. The other side, my friends on the right will say, because people are freaking lazy. That's why there's no work ethic. Now, there's some truth, maybe, to some degree in both, but this is how work ethic gets politicized. This is how the skills gap gets politicized. By the way, I'm not so sure there's a skills gap anymore. There's a will gap, for Mm -hmm. sure. But if Nick Everstadt were here, he, he would say, you can't just look at why they're not working. You've got to look at what they're doing instead and what the research indicates. And these are surveys that people take in their own words, a majority of that cohort of people we're describing right now, these men spend between 2000 and 2400 hours a year on screens. Uh That's what they're doing. Now the average work week extrapolated over a year is 2080 hours, right? 40 hours a week times 50 weeks or so, 52 weeks. Um, That's their full-time job. They're on their screens. Um, Many are collecting disability, which is another story, right? You can be able-bodied and collecting disability. I'm not saying that that, I'm not talking about the legitimate cohort who cannot work. I'm talking very specifically about this chunk of men. And Nick's point is, Look, that's never happened in a peacetime environment before. And you could maybe argue that this is not exactly peacetime, but, you know, he's he's looking at wars, right? And he's looking at what happens to the workforce during a war. And he's looking at our obsession with the unemployment number, which really is just an artifact from a depression era level of trying to make sense of what's going on in the economy. Because in those days, the number of people who were unemployed usually reflected Uh, a dearth of opportunity. But that's all gone now. There are 11 million open jobs. You can't walk down any street in any town and not see the help wanted signs. Right. And that means something else. There's something else going on in the country. It's unpleasant. It's troubling. It's important. Um, And we have to talk about it. We have to find a way to stop looking at the workforce in terms of the number of people who are unemployed and see it instead through the lens of the number of people who have affirmatively chosen not to work. Mm -hmm. What I mean, I can't help but I'm stuck on the on the Internet and the screens. And I have to ask, you know, back in our day before there was an iPhone, (laughs) was there anything like this? You know, is no. it's back to the age old technology question of, you know, m- more more good or or not as a result of these phones? Like, ha- have they helped or hurt more? I think personally, I remember a professor in college talked about the uh, displacement theory, basically saying that there was a belief that um, uh, movies would displace 
um, newspapers and TV would displace movies and the internet would displace TV and so forth and so on. And, and, and of course, what really happens is they're not displaced, they just change. And something like that, I think, is happening here. There, there are a litany, an endless litany of ways to screw off. There always have been. There are lots of things you can do instead of working. But I don't think we've seen anything like this because there is something truly addictive. And yes. going back to your monologue, you know, if, if, if you think we're living in a self-obsessed, narcissistic world driven by some weird relationship with victimhood, and then you look at what all that means to people who are now indoors all the time, looking at their screens on TikTok, on reels, I literally, not to bring it back to the bowl, but there I was this morning, waking up, <laughs> sitting down, getting my day started, and I grab my stupid phone, and like 10 minutes later, I'm still sitting there scrolling through reels, just watching, watching this thing. I'm yeah. a grown man. I have a big day. I have an interview scheduled with Megan Kelly, for God's sakes. But there I am on the bowl, 60 years old, looking at some <laughs> guy show me some freaking magic trick. And then the next and the next and the next. <laughs> Something's happening. Something's happening here. Yeah. And again, I was talking to your producer earlier, too. Do you remember Faith Popcorn? Does that name ring any bells? No. Mm -mm. she published for years in the 80s a thing called the popcorn report and it was a look at trends she was an excellent predictor of what people were going to be doing in large numbers in advance and she talked about two things the first thing she talked about was something she called um cocooning where she predicted people were going to be spending more time at home thanks to better tvs and the ability to watch movies thanks to hbo and she said, this, this cocooning thing is going to be exacerbated by more and more takeout services. People are going to start ordering food at home, and they're going to start spending more time at home watching TV. Well, of course, she was right on steroids. But then she came out with another report, and she said, screw, screw that. Never mind cocooning. We're talking about burrowing. We're talking about yeah. people going way, way deep, like really, really staying at home, radically changing the degree to which they would go outside, radically changing the way they'd think about work. All that was still pre-internet. I don't know if she's around wow. anymore. And pre-COVID. Yeah. What would she say now? Where our We can create virtual anonymous identities online. We can say anything we want anonymously. We're so brave, right? Online, so bold, so empowered. But to do what? build little monuments to ourselves, really. Your Nana was right. There's she nothing impressive. Right. There's nothing impressive about this. What's impressive is the same things that have always been impressive. The infrastructure, our grid, the pipes that connect civilized life as we understand it, and the people who maintain those things. I'll tell you, Mike, the uh, I asked her before she passed, what was the most amazing invention you've seen in your, you know, many, many years on Earth? And the number one thing wasn't electricity, wasn't the computer. It was the garage door opener. <laughs> yes. Game yeah. changer. She, yeah. she she wasn't wrong. Number two was the microwave. I love it. Uh, 
micro about the remote I, I, know, control. I don't know if you have nana's genius but you have your own special brand of genius and that's one of the many reasons why i love talking to you thanks so much for coming back on you owe me one you're gonna come on my little podcast sometime next year any time i'd be glad to do it because we're gonna take this to another level megan got i've got whole... i've got plenty of shit stories to share with you i look forward to it <laughs> you are a deep well my friend thank you for having me on <laughs> Mike Rose, see you soon. All right, we're going to be right back with a deep dive on Georgia as part of our continuing series on these critical swing states that we're watching the elections so carefully in. And there's a lot to discuss. Georgia had a debate recently, and I heard my pals over at National Review say, my God, the debate moderators, they were amazing. They were so fair. They were tough. Guess what? We got one. Uh, and this is a reporter who's been covering the whole situation down there very carefully and closely. That's next. Everything you need to know about Georgia at the gubernatorial and Senate level. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. For your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We are 20 days away from Election Day, and all eyes are on the state of Georgia and how. In the governor's race, Democrat Stacey Abrams is now hoping former President Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey can help her energize black voters. And incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is hoping that Hamilton star creator Lin-Manuel Miranda will help him with Latino voters, which has many Republicans asking, where's Joe Biden? Who, who might he help you with? <laughs> he is not on the invite list, apparently. Joining me now to get into all of it is Greg Bluestein. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and co-host of the Politically Georgia podcast. Welcome, Greg. Great to have you here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So just to tell the audience, you, you were a moderator of the gubernatorial debate between Abrams and Kemp just a couple days, not long. When was it? All these days run together, Megan. Uh, it was uh, Monday night. Monday night. Yeah, so just I was going to say, a couple days, days ago. ago. You did Wednesday, a great yes, job. And um, I heard my pals over on National Review really praising you, saying the, the moderator was just tough and fair and you know asked all the questions that the left would want asked and that the right would want asked. And that's great. That's that's not easy to achieve. So good on you. Um, you. Let's start with this. Stacey Abrams uh, is behind in this race. She's running for her second term as Georgia governor. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Brian Kemp beat her and she's never really conceded that election. And so people joke, but she made she's about 10 points behind. And she just made a comment on MSNBC this morning. That's going viral. And here's here's mm-hmm. that exchange, SOT 14. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly, but while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. 
for women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out. But let's not pretend that women, half the population, especially those of childbearing age, they understand that having a child is absolutely an economic issue. It is only politicians who see it as simply another cultural conversation. It is a real biological and economic imperative conversation that women need to have. I mean, it's I think a lot of people find that a shocking place to go when asked, what are you going to do about inflation? And, you know, to bring it to abortion, I'll just give you a, a flavor, Greg, on what's happening online amongst conservatives. Mark Thiessen, my old pal, uh, he's at AEI. Abram mm-hmm. says the answer to inflation is abortion. If you kill your baby, you won't have to feed it or drive it to school. You can't make this up. National Review. Stacey Abrams floats abortion as inflation fix. Having children is why you're worried about rising prices. The Federalists, Stacey Abrams, inflation wouldn't be so bad if you would just let us kill more babies. You get the general feel for where this is going to go amongst Republicans and probably Kemp and her opponents. Yeah, I think Governor Kemp is going to lean into this in a major way. I mean, there's a minor setback for him if he does, because he's not wanted to focus this election on abortion. He'd rather talk about the economy. But when you have an opportunity like this, in his view, right, um, a a chance to, uh, quote unquote, pounce, they're going to take it. And look, this this also speaks to a difference between the governor and Stacey Abrams when it comes to messaging. If I ask the governor the same question over and over again, he'll he'll usually give the same answer. He's, He's very scripted. He's very on message. Um, he, he faced this during the primary uh, when we asked him about Donald Trump, and he'd give the same answer over and over again. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not focused on Donald Trump, but I'll take all the help I can get, so on and so forth. If you ask Stacey Abrams the same question, she might answer it, you know, 10 different ways. And every so often, an answer comes out like this, where it's, uh, it's not perfect <laughs> by any means. Mm-hmm. Even a lot of Democrats are very upset with the way that she answered this question. She's been, in generally, trying to tie um, all three of the biggest issues on the ballot in Georgia together, the economy, guns, and abortion. She's trying to make Governor Kemp's stances on guns and, and abortion an, ec- ec- uh, an economic issue, saying that Georgia's losing business. Its pro-business reputation is, is being dinged. But when she answers questions like this, it really uh, digs a hole for her. And, and now the next few days of the campaign, if not more, are going to be focused on these comments. And if you're Governor Kemp's camp, you're going to put money behind it. You're going to, you might want to put this on air. You might want to do everything you can to amplify them. To me, this is a microcosm of what's happening to the Democrats in a lot of these bigger races that we're watching across the country from Georgia and beyond. And that is the Democrats got a, um, you know, they got some wind at their back after Dobbs, after Roe versus Wade was overturned. And they said to their base, my God, these crazy Republicans, they're going to outlaw Republic, uh, abortion in all 50 states. We've got to band together. you got to elect Democrats. And that worked for them for a while. But the inflation numbers stayed so astronomically high month after month. And it's not just a number on a piece of paper. People feel it everywhere. Every time money comes out of their wallet or goes into their their uh, bank account, they feel it such that it took over. The inflationary numbers took over. And so that myopic focus on an issue that affects, yes, some people, but not the vast majority of Americans, um, now is almost a liability. You know, now you need to be able to speak to the thing that is really upsetting folks. And that's money. That's inflation. That's what's happening in the economy. That's just more evidence. She can't do it. She's so tied to her Democratic, you know, pet issues 
that people aren't going to be confident if they put her in the gubernatorial role. She's going to help them. Yeah, it's hard to find a poll in Georgia that shows the economy or household products or just rising prices aren't the top issue. And I think, look, the Democrats, Senator Warnock, Stacey Abrams, they, they acknowledge that the economy is the top issue. And as I said, they're trying to kind of, especially in Abrams' case, trying to blend those issues together. But if you're, you know, if you're here in Georgia and you can't turn on a TV without an ad uh, attacking the Abrams-Biden inflation or attacking um, the, the Biden administration or, or tying Biden administration to these high prices. And as you mentioned, folks are feeling those issues every single day. Um, Democrats have tried to pivot back by citing the Inflation Reduction Act, but our polls show that there's mixed feelings about the impact of that legislation. And so, and it's still so soon, no one's really felt any, you know, it's hard, it's hard to point to any uh, positive effects this, this close to that legislation being passed. And I'm, I'm going to go back to the governor's debate uh, that you moderated in one second, but just while, while we're on the subject of Biden and trying to tie Abrams to Biden and trying to tie Warnock to Biden, we saw some of that in the senatorial debate, too, um, between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, where the question was to the Democrat, Warnock, do you want Biden to run for a second term? Some news was made there. Uh, this is SOT 15. Senator Warnock, a simple yes or no here. You, you'll, you'll, you will have a chance to explain, but I'd like a simple yes or no. Would you support President Biden running for a second term in 2024? I've not spent a minute thinking about what politicians should run for what in 2024. Is that a yes I, or a no? I, the answer is I have not. And, and, and maybe this is difficult. Maybe this is difficult for people to understand because that's how politicians think. I, I think that part of the problem with our politics right now is that it's become too much about the politicians. You're asking me who's going to run in 24? The people of Georgia get to decide who's going to be their senator in three days. You haven't thought about it. If you can think about it now in 2024, the president will turn 82 years old. Are you concerned about his physical and the, his mental the, fitness at that time? The, you have 30 seconds. The people of Georgia hired me to represent them, regardless of who's in the White House. Now, you and I know as political reporters, that was all intentional. There's a very good and real reason why he was answering that the way he was. Yeah. And look, I can tell you he's thought about it because I've asked him that question on the campaign trail. And so so many other reporters, and he's given a, a generally that same answer, which is, hey, I'm not focused on that. I'm not thinking about Joe Biden. I'm thinking about November. I'm thinking about my own case. And the reason why is as is, is clear as the polls. Joe Biden's approval rating here in Georgia, the last Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll was at 37%. A poll that came out a few weeks later from, the, from a news consortium put it at 38%. So he is struggling. And Raphael Warnock is moving to keep Joe Biden at arm's length, right? He speaks more about working with Ted Cruz and Tommy Tuberville on the campaign trail than he does working with Joe Biden. It's, it's his plea for those sort of middle of the road, disaffected Republican voters who might not be comfortable with Herschel Walker. That's his way of getting them in his camp. And it's a very different strategy than Stacey Abrams, who has openly encouraged Joe Biden to run for a second term, said that she wants him to campaign for him down here and even campaign with Jill Biden, the first lady, just a few days ago. So now they want Oprah to come down there and, and campaign uh, for the Dems. And they want, uh, as I mentioned, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So they're trying to get out the black vote. And they're trying to get the Hispanic vote. Do we believe 
I mean, obviously, these two groups historically have tended to vote more Democrat, Hispanics less and less so. That's been an ongoing story over the past couple of years. And even the black vote in the New York Times Siena poll that we saw recently was growing for Republicans. I think it was up at 19 percent, 18 or 19 percent, whereas, you know, about 10 years ago, it was down at eight for Republicans. So it's certainly growing in strength for the GOP, but, you know, not a majority. So what's happening with the black vote and the Latino vote in Georgia? Yeah, well, right now, Republicans are trying to expand the battleground map. Um, Governor Kemp, as you mentioned, is ahead in the polls between five, six, seven, even some polls show him at 10 points above Stacey Abrams. Um, and so he feels like he can go make a play for the suburbs. He feels like he can go reach out to African-American voters in a way that he frankly, and he'll admit it, he did not in 2018. He hardly campaigned in Atlanta's suburbs, which are very diverse. You know, Just like many suburbs, they're not monolithically white at all anymore, like they might have been 40 years ago. They're very diverse. Um, and so he's reaching out. The, the Republican National Committee and other GOP groups are opening offices in the suburbs and in the cities uh, that are geared specifically towards voters of color, Hispanic voters, Asian American voters, uh, black voters. Um, and so they're probably trying to put Democrats on the defensive. And Stacey Abrams has kind of pivoted in, in a sense, or at, least, or at least acknowledged that. And she's held a number of events in recent weeks geared specifically not just to African American voters, but in particular to black men. Um, because she knows that the polls show her, her numbers with African-Americans soft right now. Some polls show her at 80 percent of support among black voters. That sounds like a lot, but she needs to be closer to 90, 95. And she lags behind Senator Warnock, the state's first black U.S. senator, um, who's more like closer to 90 percent when it comes to black voters. So no one thinks that Governor Kemp will get 20 percent of the African-American vote. But what what Democrats worry about is a sort of a, a suppressed or a lower than expected turnout among black voters. And so far, it's very early, but early voting so far, there's been a surge of not just overall voting, but black voters so far in the first two days. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, because you've got like never ending voting in Georgia, in Georgia, like we have in Pennsylvania and other states now it just goes on and on. Three uh, weeks. I think it, it was you guys, right? Atlanta Journal Constitution and Georgia News collaborative poll on Hispanic voters, shifting gears, uh, showing Stacey Abrams has 49% of their support. Kemp has 48%. That's well within the poll's margin of error of 5.6 percentage points, which is surprising, right? That it's that tight, that yes, she's got a one point advantage, maybe um, if you factor out the margin of error, but it's surprising that it's that tight. And secondly, Walker versus Warnock, uh, the Republican versus the Dem. Walker's got a six point advantage with Hispanic voters, 47 over 41. Is that also surprising? Yeah, uh, not to say the least, and a lot of Democrats are surprised. And that, now it's a small sample size; it's about three hundred um, uh, folks who were polled. The poll was in English, um, so that could have an effect. But yes, uh, and it's about five percent um, uh, margin of error, so a little higher than we usually see with polls. But um, to say the Democrats were surprised is probably an understatement. Um, it, it, the the Latino voting block, the Hispanic voting block in Georgia, is small, but it's growing. And in a state as closely divided as Georgia is, we're just you know, fewer than 12,000 votes divided Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump back in 2020, that even small fluctuations, even small changes in voting behavior can make big, big differences in the November outcome. That's why both parties are really increasingly focusing on Hispanic voters and turn, driving up turnout. And as I mentioned earlier, um, there's a tremendous number of Hispanic voters in the Atlanta suburbs, particularly in Gwinnett County, which was a Republican stronghold until 2016, flipped blue during the Trump era and is now basically a cornerstone of the Democratic coalition. So if Republicans, they're not going to win Gwinnett County, but if Republicans can kind of keep Democratic margins down in Gwinnett County and other suburban areas, 
then they can grow their leads. And that's, that's, the, that's the angle right now. So I have a question for you because I have a theory that they don't usually poll for this, but I have a theory about mm-hmm. what's happening with these voters. And as Republican support grows amongst black voters and Hispanic voters, it occurs to me that both of these groups traditionally are churchgoers, um, high Christian population. And I do think that there's a backlash to the crazy trans ideology that's you know coming into all the schools and the over-sexualization of school educations and all the wokeism when it comes to race essentialism and so on, which I think, you know, even groups that are supposed to be benefiting from some of those race essentialism policies um, have had it with everything reducing to skin color. I mean, we've heard a lot of Latinos who are now running for office saying this is one of their inspirations. So I just wonder to what extent you think that's factoring. And I know I get economy, economy, economy. But as somebody who covers Georgia politics and follows the news cycle down there, has this been a factor? Yeah, I I would say it's fair to say it's in general, transgender politics is a factor because you can't, it's hard to turn on the radio right now and not hear ads aimed at African-American voters um, from from a conservative standpoint, attacking transgender policies, right? Uh, But, you know, you mentioned it, you hit the nail on the head. It, It still goes back to the economy. I mean, that, that same poll that you just mentioned showed that very few, it was only about 6%. So even with the giant margin of error, 6%, <laughs> you know, it shows if, if only 6% of, of, of Latino voters are confident in the direction of the country, there's a problem there. Oh, and my goodness. A, yeah, and a majority disapprove of Joe Biden's uh, performance in office. So I think, I think the real biggest factor boils down to the economy and, and, and distrust of, or at least a um, apprehension towards Joe Biden right now. Six percent of Hispanic voters say they think the country's headed in the right direction in Georgia. I mean, that is that's stunning. And that is probably the worst fact for the the Democrats running there right now. Right now. And that's that's the reason why Joe Biden's not going to, to Georgia. <laughs> that has nothing to do with schedules or anything else. That's the reason why. All right. So let's talk about the debate the other night, because. We there was this viral cr- clip all over the internet yesterday of another race out in Arizona, and that's Carrie Lake, who's the Republican running for governor there. She's gonna win. Um, I mean, she's ahead right now, and her opponent won't debate her, and isn't a particularly compelling character. I really think Carrie Lake is gonna win, and it's saying something because she kind of came out of nowhere. She was a news anchor. It was the the Republican she was challenging for the nomination was much better known and much better funded, and Carrie Lake comes up and she. She gets it. And now she's running mm-hmm. in the general and looks to win. The, the viral clip was of Carrie Lake pushing back on reporters in, in the way only a reporter would know how to do. Right. Like she was like, oh, because she's one of those Trump didn't lose people. And she's like, oh, you want to talk election denial? Let's do that. And she goes through the long list of Hillary Clinton denying the elections, Stacey Abrams denying elections, the L.A. Times saying that it was stolen from Hillary and so on. It was good stuff. Great mm-hmm. stuff. Right. She went on offense. Well. One of the people on that list is Stacey Abrams. And you kind of raised something similar in that debate that the governor uh, candidates had the other night on Monday night, where you asked her about her election denialism in a great exchange. Here's part of it. This election, do you commit to accept the outcome of the vote regardless of what it shows? And do you stand by your use of words like rigged four years ago to describe the state's election system? In 2018, I began my speech on November 16th, acknowledging that Governor Kemp had won the election. I then proceeded to lay out in grave detail the challenges faced by voters 
under his leadership. Just today, a homeless woman was denied the right to vote in Forsyth County because she could not, she did not receive a provisional ballot because she had been challenged. As governor, I intend to stand up for the right to vote. I will always acknowledge the outcome of elections, but I will never deny access to every voter because that is the responsibility of every American to defend the right to vote. In 2018, in the governor's race, we had the largest African-American turnout in the country. She said that Senate Bill 202, our recent Elections Integrity Act, what we passed two years ago, would be suppressive in Jim Crow 2.0. Just this past May in our primaries, we again had record turnout in the Republican primary and the Democratic primary. In Georgia, it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. Good for you for asking this question. But the bottom line is she was an election denier. She may claim otherwise now, but, you know, we've played the sound bites before. I have one very affirmative statement to, to make, she said, after the election. We won. This was a stolen election. They stole it from the voters of Georgia. She filed a whole lawsuit claiming that the whole system was unfair. It got thrown out in harsh terms by an Obama uh, appointed judge just recently. It was an embarrassing decision for her. There's been absolutely no evidence to support her claims that that election was stolen from her in any way. He beat her by 54,000 votes. And yet to me, she still was kind of hanging on a little like I'm still the champion of the downtrodden and the forgotten and the people who can't get to the to the polls. What did you make of the whole thing? You know, sometimes in these debates, too, you have to ask questions that you've heard the answer to before, but you know, sure. a, a broader audience. And so she's talked about this with me before. She's talked about this with other reporters and even on the campaign trail. Um, she gave us a slightly different answer than she usually does, because she usually says, look, um, you know, that I not did I refuse to concede that I use that language? Yes. Um, but did I try to undermine Did I try to overturn the election results, you know, like, like Donald Trump did? No. And so she makes that distinction with, between her and Donald Trump. But in this case, you know, we weren't talking about Donald Trump. We were talking about this election. Um, and and there, was, there were Republicans who noted that she said she would acknowledge the results, but that she didn't say that she would accept them, right? And so there's a little bit of a, a nuance there. Afterwards, her campaign said that it would indeed accept the results no matter what they, what they show. But that 10 days of, we call it kind of purgatory. There was 10 days between the election and her non-concession speech. And there was a moment... It was 10 days of very great uncertainty in Georgia because we had never, at least in modern, recent Georgia history, been through anything like that since the three governors scandal uh, 60 years ago that we don't need to get into here. Um, but it was a very big, you know, big question mark over our election system. And in the days following, you know, at the time, Democrats were putting an asterisk by Governor Kemp's name. Right, he he won by default, or he won by whatever, and there was a concern even among Democrats, hardcore Democrats, that by doing that, undermining his legitimacy, that you call into question the entire election system, and then when there is a disaster, when there is a moment where the state needs to unify, and uh, around around a state leader, and you're putting an asterisk by his name, um, then that's a problem, and, and and the Democrats stopped doing that, but clearly that rhetoric from 2018 uh, still continues to. To, to, to become an issue in this in this race. Yes. I mean, that is the thing. It's like I'm I've said on the air and many of my listeners and viewers don't agree with me, but I don't believe that there was theft of the election from Donald Trump. I don't think it was fair, but I do. I do not think this was a stolen election. Um, you can't 
you can't even talk about it without talking about how we even got to the point where someone would think about doing such a where did Trump get that kind of an idea from Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams? And it's I, I, I'm sure it's hurting her. I mean, I'm sure that people look at her and understand she was one of the first to start etching away at this principle that we used to consider inviolate, that you would not touch, that we were proud of as Americans. You know, the, the peaceful and accepted transfer of power. Our elections have never been perfect and they've always been slightly unfair one way or another. And yet we accept the results and we move on. We try to do better even against a system that's stacked against us. The next time she was one of the first to really try to change that. I'm really glad you asked her about it. Okay, so let's talk about Senate because I think it's pretty clear Kemp's going to win at the governor's level. There's a question about whether he has enough coattails to take Herschel Walker, who's more embattled, uh, over the finish line with him, or whether even without Kemp, Herschel could do it because even though he's never led in a poll, it's getting tighter. And he seems to have withstood this personal scandal pretty well. Or like you've been watching the polls closely. Has mm-hmm. he? Is that true? You know, we, we still aren't sure what the if there is any major impact, but certainly the polls still show a very tight race. And then and the reason why I don't think it will have this profound impact on the polls is that you got to remember here in Georgia, you know, for for really since Herschel Walker got in the race, even before he got in the race, there were reports about violence against women, including his ex-wife, um, threats to police officers, um, erratic behavior, blunders on the campaign trail. Um, exaggerations about his business record and his academic experience, all that. And so when you when you add these these reports that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009, I think it cemented and solidified you know his his opponents' you know support mm-hmm. for Raphael Warnock. But it's hard to say that that could that's going to change a lot of minds because there's already so much other evidence for his critics not to support him that they were already they already had other reasons to right. Um, and, and generally, to me at least, it broke down in three different camps to Republicans. There was Republicans, a big group of Republicans who didn't believe it, who just say, this close to an election, don't believe anything. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, There's other Republicans who, who might believe it, who say they, they, they could see it, those reports being accurate, but Republican control of the Senate is paramount to them. Um, and they know he, or they at least are confident he would be a solid vote for Mitch McConnell. And then there's that group of Republicans, those swing voters, um, who are voting for Kemp too. You know, we, we've we've picked this up in polls for months now. About eight percent in our last poll of Kemp supporters, nine percent of Kemp supporters say they're voting for Raphael Warnock, and another five or six percent are saying they're voting for the third party candidate. Those are the in a close race like this. Those are the types of voters that could either put you know one camp over the other over the top, or in a more likely possibility, force this race into a runoff by giving the libertarians. Oh, wait, stand by. I'm going to get out of the runoff. The Georgia runoff is so annoying. But um, <laughs> can, can you just explain why? Why would a Republican voter in Georgia, even before these scandals broke, say, I want Kemp, but I don't want Walker. I'm actually going to vote for Raphael Warnock and for Brian Kemp. Or in some cases, just undervote, just not vote. You know, I've talked why? to voters like that. Well, it's because there's, there's, a, there's a skepticism towards whether Herschel Walker is fit for office. Um, you know, there, his his ex wife Cindy Grossman is being aired in TV ads on footage of a 2000 and an interview about 15 years ago, where she's talking about his threats to choke and and, and point a gun at her head and choke her. Um, there have been a lot of blunders on the campaign drill um, that even you know Herschel Walker's camp has acknowledged. Just you know, statements, strange, strange meanderings around policies, um, mm. quotes about bad air, things like that that have made national news. 
um, and and that have seeped into the consciousness of the electorate here, right? That even his biggest supporters uh, have heard of and know about. And there's been reports about business exaggerations, about uh, you know his false claims of graduating from college and things like that. You also have to remember he is you know he's not just a, a seen as a great athlete here; he's seen as a legendary athlete. So he entered that race with an almost 100% name recognition, or at least very, very high, close to 100%. Because even folks like me, who whose parents didn't watch, didn't care about college football growing up, and now, of course, I'm a huge Georgia football fan, but they, they weren't. Mm-hmm. I still grew up hearing stories of Herschel Walker. I have Democratic friends who's na- who, who named their dogs Herschel Walker, or <laughs> whose garage codes were 3434, his number. So you know he is part of the, the social fabric here in Georgia. And that's when he entered. Then there's there's Democrats who said if he had run as a Democrat, he would have wiped the floor, the floor clean with whoever he was going against. Wow. And so that's the advantage he came with. But there's there are those voters who are still concerned about where he stands on issues and about his past and about and about the future of a U.S. Senate if he if he's a member of that body. Hmm. All right. Can you explain the Georgia runoff? This is how we got Raphael Warnock to begin with, right? So what's the, why is Georgia so much different than uh, most, uh, is it all other states? Who else does runoffs? I don't no, know. There's a few other states, but it certainly is a, <laughs> it's a headache down here because that just means extra weeks of, of TV ads. I guess it's good for the TV oh. stations, but in Georgia, the state law requires a candidate to win more than 50% of the vote. So 50% plus one. And when you have a third party candidate, that's very, it makes it a lot less likely. And so in 2018, um, what Stacey Abrams was really gunning for was not an outright victory, because as you mentioned earlier, it was 55,000 or so votes between her and Governor Kemp. But she wanted to close that gap to force a runoff. Because in a runoff, there's a sense that basically there's a reset of the race. And runoffs in Georgia used to be nine weeks long. The new state law changed them to four weeks. So that's why in 2020 slash 2021, our runoff wasn't until January 5th. Um, in fact, David Perdue technically wasn't a member of the Senate for three days because his term expired a, th- a few days earlier before that election. So it's, it's a very bizarre law. Thankfully, they 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 shortened that window, but it's still you know it's still a lot more, still an extra round. And in a race like this one, if Senate control is back up for uh, you know hanging in the balance, then we'll see. You know, we we saw almost a billion dollars. In 2020 campaigns spent on our races, we could we've already seen more than 300 million dollars. It could easily exceed half a billion dollars if Senate control is back wow. up on the line. Do we think it's likely going to go to a runoff? Do we do? Does that does that seem probable? That's my hunch right now, Megan. Because have you seen yeah. the polls? You know, even even the ones that are favorable to Warnock or or Walker, uh, rarely if ever, are either of the candidates above 50 percent. Only a few outliers show either one of them above 50 percent. They continue to show the the libertarian. Polling stronger than you libertarians usually do. You liber, your libertarians in Georgia usually get at one one percent, two percent. In this case, Chase Oliver is more like three or four, and we think that's because of Republican protest votes of Republicans who don't want to vote for Raphael Warnock, don't want to mm-hmm. skip it altogether, and are voting for the libertarian who held his own in a debate on Sunday with with uh, with with Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker was a no show at that debate, but the libertarian um, didn't do much to damage his causes with any of those. Uh, up in the air voters. So if he goes away and it's a runoff between Warnock and Walker, do we presume that the libertarians will vote Republican? We presume or, you know, in some cases they just stay home because they're they're disgusted with the two-party system, right? We've talked to plenty like that. But in a in a runoff situation, of course, turnout's lower than normal. But again, all bets are off because 
usually Republicans have won every statewide runoff in, in, in Georgia's history until, mm-hmm. until the 2021 runoff, until Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff both swept their runoffs. And that's because usually we see an older, whiter, less diverse electorate that shows up for these lower turnout affairs. But in a race like this, it is not going to be, you know, it's not going to catch anyone off guard. It'll be hard to, to, you know, be an infant in Georgia without knowing that there's a runoff coming up, if that's the right. case. Well, what happened? I mean, Georgia, I know, you know, like Virginia turned blue kind of when I was living there back in 2003. It was all these rich people from Washington, D.C. and the Beltway saying, oh, Virginia is really pretty. Let's move there. And so while it had been more rural and more Republican, it got all these sort of liberals moving out there and it became blue, not just purple, but blue. Georgia doesn't seem to me to have had that happen to it. I thought and you correct me. that it was Stacey Abrams, while she didn't win, she did a great job of registering new Democratic voters who hadn't been voting prior, in particular in the black community, which has made Georgia more purple. But am I misguided? I mean, in part, so Georgia used to be solidly Democratic, like most states in the Deep South. And then it was in 20, 2002 where Sonny Perdue became the first Republican governor elected in, in Georgia since Reconstruction. That changed the ballgame. Um, and then for about 20 years, Republicans ruled everything until until yeah. recently. But the biggest shift has been in the suburbs. The fact that suburban voters, and as I mentioned earlier, are becoming more diverse, um, th- th- they've shifted back to the Democratic Party. That that has changed the ballgame here. And of course, Stacey Abrams' efforts to energize minority voters by by embracing progressive issues that Democrats used to not talk about in Georgia, that has also changed the ballgame here. Hmm. Well, we'll see if they respond to abortion is the answer to inflation, (laughs) which they're going to be hearing a lot of over the next month. Greg, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. So last night I'm sitting in my family room and I'm eating Haagen-Dazs chocolate chocolate chip right out of the container. It was amazing. And my little Strudwick comes over to me. And, you know, most dogs, they look at you with the sad eyes. He came, he walked right up. He put his paws up and started licking my bowl. He was licking my ice cream right. I'm like, get down, you bad boy. He's not even sorry. You know, he's just like, what? What's your problem? Share. If you would like more Strudwick stories, you can sign up for our American News Minute at MeganKelly.com. And don't miss tomorrow because we've got Dave Burke, rumored to be the inspiration for Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.